control. James chapter 4, notice what the Bible says in verse number 11. We're going to read just two verses. We've looked through the first part or these first 10 verses of chapter 4 for weeks now. And we're going to look at just these two verses tonight. I don't know how long I'll be. I don't plan on being very long, but however the Holy Spirit leads, we will do. James chapter 4, notice what the Bible tells us in verse number 11. Speak not evil one of another, brethren. He that speaketh evil of his brother, and judgeth his brother, speaketh evil of the law, and judgeth the law. But if thou judge the law, thou art not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who art thou that judgest another? Father, once again, I need your wisdom. I need your help. Teach us, I pray, from James 4 this evening in Jesus' name. Amen. Years ago, I grew up in a city called Finley, Ohio. Uh, that is in the Midwest of the United States. And uh, it was an area of Ohio that, uh, uh, an area of the city that had a river that would go along the backside of the property. That river was called the Blanchard River. That river was a river that had a lot of silt and a lot of soil and a lot of things beginning to accumulate along the bed of that river. That river began to be shallower and shallower and shallower. It needed to be dredged. It needed to have some heavy equipment with a barge or a large boat come and dig out that debris and all the different things that gather at the bottom of the river and to be cleaned and to be given space so it would not do what it was prone to, and that is flood. It would flood seemingly very easily. It wouldn't take much rain, it seemed, for the water to begin to rise. I remember as a teenager one time in which it began to rain and it rained and it rained and it rained and it just seemed like it was a week long of rain and as it rained we would come home from school and we would look out into the back garden it was a long back garden and in the back of that we could see the Blanchard River starting to rise and as the river started to rise suddenly it would it suddenly it crested over uh, the uh, 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 the, the shores or the, uh, or the sides of that river and began to flood, began to spread. And we watched it as it would go up into the lower part of the back garden and began to seep up closer and closer to our home. Our home was uh, thankfully on the first level and so it was above the ground floor there and so we uh, 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 thankfully uh, we're not concerned, hopefully, with our things. It was a tall ground floor. I think it was 12 or 15 foot ceilings. So it was a tall uh, building. And we weren't so much afraid of, the, of our living area as much as my dad's business below. That was electronics. Electronics and water do not mix. And I remember coming home from school and the water being very near the car park, very near the building. And I remember uh, my parents saying, we need to start putting things up on shelves and we need to start getting things higher because it's going to continue to rain and we're afraid that it's going to flood. And obviously we need to get things up as high as we can. And I remember helping and seeing those who my dad employed to help uh, to get things up off of the floor and off of the uh, lower shelves and to get up as high as we could to prevent any damage from flood should it continue. And sure enough, that Blanchard River continued to flood. Sure enough, the water continued to seep and the time came into where it started entering through the door uh, uh, that was in the downstairs uh, or in the ground floor there. And 
I remember uh, the waters beginning to come up. And I was somewhat excited because it was my first big flood that we had that, that I've been through and also because hey I'm not going to school anymore uh, I went to public school and you can't go to school uh, if you're if you're flooded in and so I had some time off uh, from school that week as the flood waters continued to rise and the flood waters continued to build and it grew and grew and grew and it began to spread and it would spread it spread down the main street it would go further down into town and as they saw that the rain was continuing to come and the water was continuing to rise the city decided to do some things to try to prevent further damage to try to control any further damage from what was going to take place and they did so by taking sandbags and flood barriers and began putting it not only just on the streets but down properties and across property lines and tried to limit how far the water would go into town by putting up these the sand these sandbags and these barriers to try to redirect and to contain the water so it would not damage more than what it already had they were in the process of trying to control further or to prevent further destruction these controls certainly were put in place these things were certainly done to try to limit damaging further things you know in james chapter 4 in the verse in the verses 1 through 5 I'm not going to reteach those, but as we saw in previous weeks, that those verses show us the damage of strife between Christian brethren, between Christians, between those who would go to the same church, those who maybe worked in cities uh, uh, or neighboring cities, and maybe there was a strife between churches or between Christians and there was wars and fighting and strife going on among brethren. James addressed that. He told us how that was damaging and was truly was spreading and it was causing destruction. That, that fighting, that strife, the jealousy and all the things that was going on and attacking one another was a flood and it was apparent and it was damaging you see, not only my family, it wasn't not only my family that knew the flood was there. Everyone in the city, everyone in the town was aware of the news that the Blanchard River was flooding. And the water damage was taking place. It was apparent. And my friends, when there is strife, when there is jealousy and attacking one another in the Christian realm, the world sees it. The world sees and hears our words and our actions. And it does damage like that flooding Blanchard River did. The solution was presented in verses number 6 through 10. As James encouraged children of God to come back to God, to draw nigh to God, he says, he encouraged children to the children of God to get their hearts right with the Lord humbly realizing the destruction that was being caused the solution was truly to dredge out just like the solution to stop the Blanchard River from continually flooding was to dredge out that muck and that mire and that debris in the bottom of that riverbed the solution was to get rid of that sin pride wickedness in the hearts of god's people and dredge that out and clean it out coming to god humbly and getting our hearts right with the lord james tells us what the solution is is to confess our sin and allow Jesus Christ, allow the Holy Spirit, 
allow God the Father to pull that sin and wickedness in our lives out. But the Bible teaches us here, as the floodwaters rose, and as the solution was presented, James teaches us here about how to do some damage control. What do I mean by damage control? I don't mean it as keeping silent, but I mean as how we allow the floodwaters of strife and of fightings and of jealousy to be minimized. To, continue, uh, to prevent it from continuing to spread. What is that? Well, it's the sandbags, it's the flood barrier we see in verse number 11 and, 11 and 12. James teaches us how to prevent further damage by setting up the barrier, setting up the sandbags, if we can put it that way. From the flood waters that was damaging and was truly was, uh, was well known and was apparent not only among the church and churches, but among even the world as they were seeing Christians behave in a way that was, par- uh, that was very apparent that was not what God desired. I want us to look first, uh, uh, first of all at the first phrase of verse number 11 as we see James say, Speak not evil one of another, and then here we go, brethren. Again, just in case we are trying to portray our own context or our own meaning, James makes it very clear here, brethren, family of God. He says, speak not evil one of another. James teaches us how to stop the floodwaters from rising, how to stop the destructive spread of words by following a principle that we find in Proverbs chapter 26. In Proverbs chapter 26, notice what the Bible tells us in verse number 20. Where no wood is, there the fire goeth out. So where there is no tailbear. We look at that word tailbear, and it's something we don't use much uh, in our society today, but it actually means someone who is a grumbler. <laughs> someone who is always complaining, someone who is always looking for something to arouse a fight with, as we'll see in just a moment. A tailbearer is someone who goes away and says, can you believe what that person said? Can you believe what that lady said? Can you believe what pastor said? And begins to grumble and complain under one's breath, speaking evil of another. Notice what happens when the tailbearer is not present. When there is no grumbling, when there is no evil speaking, the strife, the battle, the war ceaseth. As coals are to burning coals and wood to fire, so a contentious man to kindle strife. The words of a talebearer are as wounds, and they go down into the innermost parts of the belly. Those grumbling words from a talebearer, they hurt. They create stress, they create wounds, they create trauma in the heart of others. And because of the wounds inflicted from a talebearer, Proverbs wisely states, where one chooses not to be a talebearer, not to be a grumbler, not to speak evil of another, the strife ceaseth. The waters have been contained. The fire is no longer spreading as Proverbs illustrates. It spreads quickly. A negative word spreads much faster than a positive word. How sad that is. But how much we look at it today among the media. (laughs) How much encouragement do you get from going to the BBC? Not much. When's the last time you read a report on the BBC and said, praise God, that's exciting? Uh, Probably not this week or this last month or in the last decade. (laughs) Very rarely 
do we ever see positive news? What is it? It's negative. Why? Because negative news sells. Negative words spread quickly. The Bible teaches an Old Testament example found in 1 Kings 13. I'm going to read for just a moment here the words of a uh, another preacher named Alexander White. Let me just read to what he has written about 1 Kings 13. It was a high day of, a, of idolatry at Bethel, and all the time Bethel, of all the cities of Israel, was one of the most ancient and most sacred. Bethel, as, it names, uh, as its name bears, was none other but the house of God. And it was the very gate of heaven. Bethel was built on that very spot on which their father, Jacob, had slept and dreamed when he was lonely, uh, when he was on his lonely way to Padanaram. And it is that very heaven out of which the ladder was let down on Jacob's pillow that is today to be darkened by the unclean incense of Jeroboam's altar fires. It was a brave step in Jeroboam to set up his false gods at Bethel, of all places in the land. And he needed a stout heart and a profane to support him as he stood up to kindle with his own hands the heathen fires of idolatry and impurity at Bethel. And behold, there came a man of God out of Judah by the word of the Lord unto Bethel. And Jeroboam stood by the altar to burn incense. And the man of God cried against the altar of the Lord and said, O altar, altar! And then he foretold the fall of the altar. And with it the fall of him who stood in his royal robes that day, ministering to his unclean gods at, the, uh, at that altar. And how Jeroboam's hand was withered that moment. How it was healed immediately at the intercession of the man of God. How Jeroboam invited the prophet to come home with him to eat and to drink and to get a reward. And how the prophet answered the king that he had the, com uh, that he had the command of the Lord neither to eat bread nor to, drink uh, nor to drink in that polluted land, but to return home to Judah as soon as he had delivered his prophetic burden. All that is to be read in the 13th chapter of 1 Kings. At the same time, we are not told so much as this great prophet's name. He was wholly worthy thus far to have his name held up aloft along the names of Samuel and Elijah themselves. For he stood up alone against Jeroboam and against all Israel and nailed the curse of God to Jeroboam's altar under the king's own eyes. He would, have hold, uh, he would hold his name in more, uh, more than royal honor if we knew it. But for some reason or other of our own, the Bible holds his great name back. This great man of God comes out of a cloud. He shines for a splendid moment before all men's eyes. And then he dies under a cloud. Alas, my brother, come home with me and refresh thyself. But the man of God said to the king, If thou wilt give me half thine house, I will, no, uh, I will not go in with thee. Neither will I eat bread nor drink water with thee. So he went another way and returned not by the way that he came to Bethel. Just as the man of God is setting out to go back to Judah with a hungry belly indeed, but with a good conscience. We are taken by the hand and are led into the house of an old prophet who dwells at Bethel. Yes, there are prophets and prophets' sons all this time at Bethel. Only they had their domiciles and their doles from Jeroboam's bounty on the strict condition that they kept at home and kept silence. Well, this old Bethelite prophet was keeping at home and was keeping silence when his sons burst in upon him with the great news of the day. Father, you should have come with us. We asked you to come. What a day it has been, and what a man of God we have seen. Till they told him all that we, were, uh, we are told about Jeroboam and his altar and the man of God from Judah and his cry that shook down the altar and the king's, hand, oh, king's withered hand and the prayer of the man of God and the king's hospitality and the man of God's refusal of the king's hospitality what way went he home demanded the old prophet of his excited sons saddle me the ass he instantly ordered 
Art thou the man of God from Judah, he asked, as he overtook the man of God, sitting under an oak. Come home with me and eat bread. I may not eat uh, bread nor drink water by the word of the Lord, said the man of God. But I am a prophet as thou art. But it was a lie, adds the sacred writer. So the man of God rose and went back and did eat bread and drink water. And so on, till a lion met him in the way home that night and slew him because he had gone back. And when the old Bethlehem prophet, who had deceived him, heard of it, he mourned over him and said, Alas, my brother. And he said to his sons, Bury me beside this, old, uh, beside this man of God. Lay my bones beside his bones. What is it that makes this decrepit old prophet of Bethel post at such a pace after the man of God who is on his way home to Judah? Has his conscience at last been awakened? Have the tidings of his delighted sons filled the poor old time saver with bitter remorse for his fat table and for his dumb pulpit? Or is a deadly envy and revenge, uh, and, me, revenge at the man who has, who, uh, who has so stolen his son's heart that day till they are about to set off to Judah to go to school to this man of God. It is too late for him to command his son's reverence and love. And how can he ever forgive the man who has so taken from him his crown as a prophet and as a father? Saddle me the ass, he shouted. And the decayed old creature rode down the down the Judean road at a pace he had not written since he used as a godly youth to be sent out on errands of life and death and mercy from Samuel's school of Mount Ephraim. If lies will do it, if flattery, flesh, and wine will do it, that Judean's prophet's pride shall be brought down today. Saddle me the ass, he thundered. So they saddled him the ass, and he rode after the man of God. I am a prophet as thou art. But he lied unto him. We are not told why this great man of God stopped short so soon on his way home from Bethel and sat down so soon under one of the oaks of Bethel. He had done a splendid day's work. Never prophet of God did a more splendid day's work. But our hearts sink as we see him stop short and then take his seat under that tempting tree. What was the matter? We are not told. He may have been very hungry by this time. And he may have begun to repent that he had not accepted the penitent king's hospitality. Who knows what good might have come of it, had, uh, of it had he, God's acknowledged prophet, been sitting in a place of honor at the royal table. Had he not been somewhat short and sharp and churlish after his great battle with Jeroboam's altar? Well then, if that was the case with the man of God from Judah, here is the forbidden fruit of Bethel back. And at his open mouth this moment, I am a prophet as thou art. And an angel spake unto me by the word of the Lord, saying, Bring him back to eat and drink. So we went back with him to his house. It was surely a little sin, if ever there was a little sin, to sup that Sabbath night at an old prophet's table, and that, too, on the invitation of an angel. But the lion that met the disobedient prophet that night did not reason that way. Bury me, said the remorseful old man to his son standing in tears round his miserable deathbed. Bury me in the same grave with the bones of the man of God out of Judah. And the old prophet's son so buried their father in an awful grave that was in Bethel. With an awful epitaph upon it. Now suppose this. Suppose that you were buried on the same awful principle in whose grave would your bones lie waiting together with his till the last trump to stand forth before God and man together. And What would your epitaph and his be? Would it be this? Here lie the liar and his victim. Or would it be this? Here lie the seducer and the seduced. Or would it be this, here lie the hater, and him he hated down to death. Evil speaking is destructive. David Livingston is well aware of the destructive words and was well aware of the destructive words 
that Christian brethren can give, speaking evil as a talebearer, grumbling and complaining and backbiting others. David Livingston's wife died a premature death in African soil thanks to the backbiting tongues of some people in the white settlements of Africa. My friends, there's a barrier that James so wisely sets before us, and that is to speak no evil of one another. No evil. No unkind word. No slight grumbling. No bit of mumbling. Speak no evil of one of another. Oh, if we watched our tongues, how that would transform a church, a Christian family, a marriage. How we need to learn this art of setting up the barrier of speaking no evil. James does not simply stop at just setting up the barrier for us to prevent the floodwaters of evil speaking to continue and strife and jealousy and warring. But he gives the reason for it. He gives the doctrine behind that command, behind that instruction of obedience. Notice what he says in James chapter 4, verse number 11. He that speaketh evil of his brother and judgeth his brother speaketh evil of the law and judgeth the law. The reason why in which one is not to speak evil of another is because it is sinful according to the word of God. Let's finish the verse and we'll put it all in context. Notice how the Bible continues and explains the motive behind that sin. But if thou judge the law, thou art not a doer of the law, but notice these words, but a judge. Why is it wrong to speak evil of one another? Why is it wrong to speak evil of a Christian brother, a Christian sister, whether it's one in your own household or whether it's in the church of God or whether it's someone serving and laboring for Christ, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ? Why is it wrong to speak evil of another? Because when we do so, when we choose to do so, we are entering into a position, into a territory of that of judge. We are entering into a territory that is not ours to be in. You see, the territory of judge is not for ours to trespass into. It's not for ours to avoid the warning signs and to disregard those things and tramp into that uh, area of judgeship. For the Bible teaches us that there is one judge and his name is God. God's territory is to be judge. He sees the motives. He knows the reasons. He knows the intents of the heart. And he is the one that truly can judge righteous judgments. You see, he knows every reason why that brother or sister does what he or she does. He knows the motives. He knows the intents. He knows what they have been taught, what they have been instructed. He knows whether it's stepped out upon other simple ignorance or whether it's stepped out in direct disobedience of God. He knows exactly what has taken place in that individual's heart, in that child of God's heart. He knows it and he is the one that can judge righteously i don't know everyone's history nor do you you don't know everyone's background my friends because we do not know every area of their life let alone the motives and the intents of their heart i cannot judge righteously no one can except for god job was a perfect and an upright man whom God allowed Satan to test by taking away literally everything. Job lived in an agricultural society where crops and animals was simply your monetary value. He lost it all. He was a wealthy man. Large herds, large flocks, all of it gone. His family all of his children, 
were taken from him. All of them were killed tragically. Job's health was diminished. The Bible teaches us that even his relationship with his wife, his best friend, began to be troubled. Job went from enjoying the blessings of God to now suffering or enjoying another blessing. But it was a blessing of sorrow. Job had three friends. His friends came upon the news, sat with him for seven days, not saying a word, just simply sitting with him, seeing the brokenness of his heart, seeing the deep wounds inflicted upon his spirit. And then they began to speak. Job's friends began to critique him harshly. They began to judge him by stating over and over again that there must be some blatant and wicked sins in his life for all of this to happen to him. They were truly unmerciful in their judgment upon Job. When they had finished slandering Job, God spoke. And when God spoke, all of their merciless judging was put to silence. At the end of God speaking, Job stood forth. Not only vindicated that he had done nothing wrong, as the Bible calls him, and God testified of him, a perfect and upright man, one that eschewed evil, but he was also purified by fire. God turned to Eliphaz, seemingly the chief of the three friends whom criticized and spoke evil of Job. And God began to address Eliphaz by this statement in Job 42. In verse number 7, And it was so, that after the Lord had spoken these words unto Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against thee and against thy two friends, for ye have not spoken of me the thing that is right, as my servant Job hath. Therefore, take unto you now seven bullocks and seven rams, and go to my servant Job, and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering, and my servant Job shall pray for you. For him will I accept, lest I deal with you after your folly, in that ye have not spoken of me the thing which is right, like my servant Job. These quote-unquote friends of Job were guilty of doing exactly what James 4.11 had stated. They spoke evil, stepping into the role of judge and in their eyes, jury. And they were ready to lay the conviction down of condemnation upon Job, but God says, you don't know the full story. I know the full story. I can judge righteously. How many times do we enter into that friend status? of job we think we know does god have to expose to us how little we do know job or excuse me james now finally gives us some guidance some direction in this truth of speaking no evil of not stepping into the area of judge But notice what he says in verse number 12 now. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Notice this question. Who art thou that judgest another? James says, who do you think you are? 
There's one judge. There's one lawgiver. And his name is God. He is the one who knows every detail. He is the one that truly can judge righteously and know and has the power, uh, the absolute power of life and death in his hands. He is the one that gave the law. He laid it down. He is the one that knows all the details, all of the facts, all of the history, all of the motives and intents of every heart. You see, James had seen this very thing play out in the church in which he pastored. In Acts chapter 10, turn there with me and we'll be done this evening. I want you to see a situation in which truly illustrates what we have seen in James 4 so very well. There's a reason why the Holy Spirit of God could use James to write these very words because he had seen exactly what he penned played out before him. Maybe he was even privy to it. Notice what the Bible says in Acts chapter 10, verse number 1. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of the band called the Italian band, a devout man and one that feared God with all his house, which gave much alms to the people and prayed to God always. He saw in a vision evidently about the ninth hour of the day an angel of God coming into him and saying unto him, Cornelius. And when he looked on him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? And he said unto him, Thy prayers and thine alms are come up for a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and call for one Simon, whose name is Peter. The Bible teaches us that there was a man who was looking to how to get saved. He didn't know how to put his faith and trust in God. But he knew God and he trusted God. He needed some direction and his heart needed some, uh, 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 some instruction on who Jesus Christ, the Savior, is so he could get saved. And God gave him instruction to go and see a man by the name of Peter. Immediately, these uh, immediately men went from Cornelius' house to find Peter. And as they went to find Peter, Peter see a vision, the Bible teaches us. A vision of a great sheet filled with all kinds of meats. Meats that, for, that were forbidden for he as a Jew to eat according to Old Testament law. And they were presented before him. And the Bible teaches us that a voice said, eat. Peter was hungry, the Bible speaks of. But Peter looked and said, no, I am not going to eat. The Bible tells us in verse number 15, upon the second time of seeing this vision, of seeing this situation of a great sheet filled with meats, of all kinds that he would not have eaten or would have been forbidden to eat. In verse number 15, the Bible says, And the voice spake unto him again the second time, What God hath cleansed, that call not thou common. God was trying to move Peter's heart. Peter was the only one privy to what was being uh, shown to him. Peter was the only one that knew the background and the story of what was taking place here. Three times he saw this vision. Three times he said no. And upon seeing this vision, suddenly there's a knock on the door in a home in which he is staying. And suddenly, Cornelius' men have arrived. Peter, seeing this vision before him, decides to go with these Gentiles. These were not Jewish people. They were Gentiles, and there was not much interaction between the Jews and the Gentiles at this time. In fact, they tried to keep the gospel to the Jew only. And the Bible teaches us in verse number 34, as Peter, meant, as Peter fought, uh, met Cornelius and Saul, how God prepared the hearts of Cornelius for the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
The Bible teaches us, then Peter opened his mouth and said, Of a truth, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. Peter got what God was trying to show him on that rooftop. He got finally the message began to seep into his heart. He suddenly realized that salvation wasn't for just the Jew, it was for the Gentile. The Bible continues the word which God sent unto the children of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. And he began to tell of Jesus Christ and how they can get saved look at verse number 43 for sake of time to uh, to him give all the prophets witness that through his name whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins he says if you put your faith and trust in jesus christ if you believe on the lord jesus christ that he came by way of the virgin birth that he did live for 33 and a half years that he did die on the cross a sacrificial death that he was the lamb that paid the price for our sins his blood was shed but his blood didn't stay on that cross it was applied on the mercy seat of heaven and if you trust not only in the death of jesus christ on the cross and how he was broken and how his blood was shed for you but believe even how Jesus Christ rose again, you can know Jesus Christ as Father, as friend, as Savior. Notice what happened. Verse number 44, while Peter yet spake these words, what happened? (laughs) Peter still teaching, preaching to them. The Holy Ghost fell on all them which heard the word. Peter's teaching them, and as Peter is teaching, suddenly these people are saying, you know what, Peter, we believe, we trust in God, we trust in Jesus Christ, and they got saved. They became born again into the family of God. Oh, how, what an exciting moment that must have been. What incredible opportunity that was to see these people so willingly and so openly accepting of Jesus Christ. Peter finishes his conversation with the Cornelius and his family, sees them baptized, and then heads home. When he heads home, look what greets him. Did Peter do anything wrong? No, he did everything right. He did exactly what God told him to. He preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. But then he gets home. Look at verse number 1 of Acts 11. And the apostles and the brethren that were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. Well, wait a minute. Isn't the gospel just for the Jews? And Peter's gone into the Gentiles. Peter's told those who are not Jewish about Jesus Christ. Their concern caused them to question. When Peter was come up to Jerusalem, they that were of the circumcision contended. They were at strife. There was a heated debate. There were some heated words going back to James 4, a war, a contention was had in this church with him saying, Thou wentest into men uncircumcised, and didst eat with them. But Peter rehearsed the matter from the beginning, and expounded it by order unto them, saying. Peter begins to relay his story. These people are not happy with Peter. You went to the Gentiles, you ate their food, you gave them the word of God. What are you thinking, Peter? What are you doing? What were they doing? They were doing exactly what James 4.11 says. Speaking evil. Stepping in to judge. They did not know the full story. They didn't understand that God was the director of it all. And as Peter relays the full story of what is going on, he concludes in verse number 15. Notice it with me. 
And as I began to speak, the Holy Ghost fell on them as on us at the beginning. Then remembered I the word of the Lord, how that he said, John indeed baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost. For as much then as God gave them like the like gift as he did unto us, who believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, what was I that I could withstand God? He said, what did I do wrong? God told me to do it. It wasn't for me to stand in the way of preaching the gospel of Christ. I did everything God told me to. What did I do wrong? Why am I evil spoken of? And as they heard the story, and as they heard of the words from Peter, notice what happened. Look at verse number 18 and we're done. When they heard these things, they held their peace. They spoke no evil of their brethren. Then what did they do? They chose to what? Glorify God. Saying, Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. Thank God he's granted Gentiles repentance unto life. I'm thankful salvation isn't for just the Jew. It's for the Gentile. It's for everyone. God so loved the world. And these Christians finally understood that what they were upset about was what God had directed Peter to do. I wonder how often good motives are mistaken by good people. Because we choose for a moment to step into the role of judge. Why was that taught? Why was this spoken of? Maybe it's because God said it. And that individual was just simply teaching the word of following the word of god maybe it's different than what you and i perceive it to be maybe it's different than how you or i would teach it but if they're a born again child of god why don't we fall on our knees before a holy god if we think there's some error if we think there's something wrong why don't we fall on our knees before a holy God, the judge, and ask for him to intervene? Ask for him to teach and to train and to guide. Who are we to set ourselves up as friends like Job and begin to bring harsh criticism and unmerciful, uh, uh, an unmerciful spirit in conversation when God is the judge? He alone, He alone can judge righteous judgment. Sometimes when conviction hits our hearts, we jump to conclusions. Sometimes we think, oh wow, that was speaking just to me. That was formulated just for me. And many times, just the Holy Spirit of God teaching and directing. Understand, we don't know the full story. But by faith, we can go to the God, our God, and we can trust Him that if there is wrong that is being spoken, that He is the one that can correct. He is the one that can righteously judge the situation. That takes faith. That takes a trust in the Lord. Brethren, why don't we tonight decide 
that we're going to stop the damage. If we're going to choose to be an encouragement, exhort one another. So much the more as you see the day approaching. The day of the return of Jesus Christ is nigh. It is very near. It might even before I'm done speaking this very evening, it's close. And the closer it gets, the more encouragement the brethren need. As Christians, may we encourage, exhort one another, help one another. A kind word means so much. Let's take the wisdom of James here tonight and learn how to control damage by words when there's strife and contention involved. If we were to learn this principle, it would deepen our faith. It would strengthen our trust in the gospel because he's the one who can take care of it all. And it would change the way we look at one another. It would change the way we interact with one another. Because we're looking for ways to encourage. We're looking for ways to build up, to not tear down. That's what a church ought to be. That's what a Christian family ought to be. This world tears us down enough. This world is calling Christians terrorists. This world is killing children of God. The world is not our friend, it's our enemy. And oh, how the family of God needs to exhort and to build up one another. It takes work. It takes thoughtful, purposeful words. May we learn this talent. May we learn this spiritual instruction. It changes our relationships.